Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who believes if you want to be productive, you have to get eight hours of sleep every week. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Steve Greenhouse, who has reported on labor and workplaces for The New York Times for more than 30 years, so he's seen a lot of changes. He's also the author of a new book called Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Steve, welcome to Recode Decode. Great to be here. So I'll get to your book in a second, but I want people to get a sense. You've been covering this for 30 years. With the, the changes in the workplace are probably rather significant over the last 30 years. How did you start? Start a little bit. Of, people like to know people's backgrounds to get an idea of how they got to where they got. So I went to Columbia Journalism School. Me too. Uh, then I went to work for the Bergen Record in northern New Jersey for three years. I wasn't terribly happy there. Then I went to NYU Law School, finished up there. But while at law school, I thought, you know, being a journalist is much more fun than being a lawyer. Yeah. And I figured if well, I can get a job one. at the New York Times or the Washington Post, I would do that. Oh, aiming high. All right. Well, I'd, I'd been a copy boy at the New York Times mm-hmm. right out of college. And this a few editors thought I was a smart young lad. And mm-hmm. I did very well in law school, and they thought they'd take a chance on me. And I started as a business reporter covering the steel industry, which remains very, very relevant. And I was writing about crisis in American steel from imports and debates over tariffs. This is in the early 80s. And then I was Chicago Midwest economics correspondent for the Times for three years, and I must have done something right. Then I was in Paris for five years for the paper, which was like a lifelong dream to be a foreign correspondent in Paris. And I covered the collapse of communism. I covered the European Union. And then I was in Washington covering economics for a few years, Mm -hmm. then covering the State Department for a few years. And I got tired of writing about abstract policy. Right. And I wanted to write about flesh and blood human beings again. Mm -hmm. So I applied for the labor beat. And all these friends of mine said, you are out of your mind. Why did you, why did you do it? What was your – Because it was – Besides you know, flesh, there's flesh and blood yeah. people everywhere. Yeah, like, but it, you know, it, it, because it was open and you know, I grew up in a family where my father was vice president of his local teachers union. And I grew up listening to Pete Seeger and Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie. And I was interesting people. And, and when I was covering the steel industry, mm-hmm. I wrote a lot of stories about you know, steel plant closures and how that affected – you know, Michigan and, and Illinois and the Quad Cities. And I've always been interested in policy issues and social issues and real people. And the labor beat, for me, was really good. Some friends told me, it's the least sexy beat. You don't want it. You know, you're going you're gonna to fade away. You were in Paris. You're in Washington. You right. have a great career. And I said, you know, there are 100, then 130 million workers in, in the United States. And if I can't find lots of good stories to write about them, 
then I'm deficient as a reporter. And I, you know, revived the beat and people thought, well, this is a great beat. And because there's so many great stories. Yeah. When you were covering the the steel industry, what would you say your most striking story was then? What was the the themes of of what you were writing? Because the steel industry sort of represented the changing American. We had this workforce that was manufacturing in the middle class or the the working class, the blue collar workers, you know, car makers, things like that. That was sort of the the narrative for the U.S. labor as we moved from farming to manufacturing. So I, I started the Times in 1983 as a business reporter and I was covering the steel industry. Mm-hmm. And that was right after the horrendous, horrible right. 1980 recession and plant closings were going crazy. Right. And the Decimating big story, right. the big story was the huge plant closing and the huge layoffs. And then there was the big debate about whether to impose tariffs. And I, I did the story in uh, southwest Illinois where there's a big steel plant right in the middle of soybean fields. So they were like kind of slapping tariffs on Europe mm-hmm. and limiting steel from Europe. And the Europeans were retaliating against our farmers. And it you know, raised many of the same issues as today where the farmers right. were being screwed by efforts to help Another, you know, industry. Right. And so when you, were, when you were looking at that changing narrative, manufacturing had long taken over farming. And that was the last jarring, I guess, shift in labor. Um, a lot of Silicon Valley people talk about that now, the, the shift from farming to manufacturing, how much better it was, and that the next era is going to be better, that it's going to be like that, and we don't even understand it. I'll get to that in a minute. But when you, when you were thinking about the manufacturing, the narrative had turned dark, the idea that man, manufacturing anything in the United States would not happen, that it would move abroad, that there was nothing we could do about it. In the 80s, that narrative hadn't yet taken hold. Mm-hmm. You know, 1979 was like the peak of the American economy in many mm-hmm. ways. We had 19 and a half million manufacturing jobs, and we had this horrible recession, and we really started feeling the bite of imports, you know, cars from Japan, cars from Germany, lots of steel. And over the next 10, 15 years, the number of manufacturing jobs declined from 19.5 million all the way down to 12.5. We lost more than around 40% of our manufacturing jobs. Then people realize after a few years, you know, this is really serious. Our, our manufacturing sector is really shrinking. The number of jobs is shrinking, partly because of imports, partly because of offshoring, partly because of greater, you know, greater efficiency. And I think that has forced us as a nation to really start thinking about, well, is, is, is manufacturing as great as we thought? And, mm-hmm. and there's been a real, real, you know, so I, I write a lot about the labor movement and workers. And, and as a result of the crisis in manufacturing, a lot of corporations really started squeezing, fighting unions very hard, fighting workers right. very hard, fighting the basic compensation package that you that, know, that our middle class manufacturing strength, workers right. had. Yes, right. So, of the th- you named several things of, of the decline in manufacturing. Is there any one, or was it all of them together? Tariffs, offshoring, um, bringing in imports. What What do you imagine? Rapacious companies. What. I think it was certainly imports, but I thought it was also globalization in mm-hmm. general. You know, with the internet, you know, with the digitalization, it became, you know, much easier for a garment manufacturer or a refrigerator manufacturer to produce overseas rather than in the United States. And I think that really hurt tremendously. There's been a study showing that, you know, the permanent normalized trade relations with China, which was enacted under Bill Clinton, ended up costing us 2 million manufacturing jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and clearly NAFTA, you know, cost, you know, co- you know I, I spent a lot of time in the Midwest writing right. about a whole, whole lot of plant closings and it's depressing as hell, but very important. And I know a lot of people said NAFTA didn't hurt our manufacturing. You know, I kind of call BS on that because mm-hmm. I, 
I wrote about a lot of plants that closed and moved to Mexico. Right. So was there anything that the country could have done at the time? Was there, or was this just an inevitable result of globalization and that companies – I want to get into this new business roundtable idea of, of shareholders in a second. But was there anything that we could have done to prevent that? Or was it just the inevitable – you know, consumers want lower prices. Consumers want goods that are easy to get and easy to, to source. And so do companies. So two answers to that. You know, Jimmy Carter tried this half-hearted effort to like prop up a few steel companies, but we, you know, we're a very, you know, free market economy, right. and and he got a lot of grief for that. Mm-hmm. But you know, we could have done more of what China did and what the European Union did, kind of subsidize companies that were hurting. Uh, but much more than that, you know, we have this philosophy of profit maximization. And shareholder attention. Focus on shareholders. And, you know, again, I, I wrote lots of stories about companies laying off 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 people. And the company, you know, yes, some companies are really losing money and really have to cut costs. But sometimes they went overboard to try to impress Wall Street because Wall Street's really impressed when you're, you know, chop your, your right. head count. And I think there was too much focus on you know, on the shareholders and not enough on the workers and on the communities. And with the announcement, you know, two days ago about we're not going to, the business roundtable, you know, a group of the 200 Mm -hmm. CEOs from the 200 largest companies saying, you know, folks, after all this soaring income inequality, after all these layoffs, after decades of wage stagnation, you know, folks, maybe we're focused, we focus too much on profit maximization. It's nice that they're saying that. It's not clear to me that they're going to do much about it. It mm-hmm. might just be lip service and public relations. Let's hope they mean it. I've, twe- I've, I've tweeted out that okay. if they really, really mean that they mm-hmm. shouldn't focus so much on shareholders, they should ask President Trump to repeal the $1 trillion tax cut for corporations. Right. And let's use that money to stimulate the economy to avoid yeah. a recession or to deal with the, the homeless crisis on the West Coast and mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. So d- talk about that because I, I call it the fuck you, Milton Friedman moment, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is in any way. And I, I was interested in why they're doing that now. To me, I mean, my partner who does Pivot with me, Scott Galloway, thinks it's because they're scared of the pitchforks, that this income equality issue has become so severe that they're worried, the rich are worried about other repercussions. I, th- I think it's part of the pitchforks. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of businessmen, maybe while they'll support Donald Trump, you know, publicly, deep down, they really don't love him. And they think he doesn't respect business and he doesn't respect the rule of law and he doesn't respect, you know, our, 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 you know, our wonderful norms of democracy and free speech. Well, he and is the king of Israel. Yeah. So. And, and they're really uncomfortable with him. Mm-hmm. And they realize that there's this big backlash kind of against corporations. You know, when Trump ran and won in the Middle West, you know, he really had a, you know, very pro-worker message. Mm -hmm. And then there are things like the banks causing the Great Recession, the financial crisis of 2009, you know, Purdue Pharma and that total disaster on opiates. I forget the name where he like raised the price of certain pharmaceuticals, like, you know, 15, 20, 25. Mm -hmm. So I think, and plus, you know, we see the stock market reaching records month after month, year after year, generally. Corporate profits have generally been near profits, but been near records. But wages have, after inflation, wages have really gone almost nowhere for 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's good that Jamie Dimon and the, and the Business Roundtable realized- This is the CEO Yeah, the, sorry, the CEO of the business, CEO of Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase right. and the head of the Business Roundtable realized we have an image problem here and we have a substantive problem here. And I think this is an important first step to- announced that we have a problem. Now we have to see what they will do about it. 
So talk, give a little – I would love you to walk back in history because you talk about this new book – is the corporate maximiz- profit maximization was a new thing, was a relatively new thing because what they're talking about is what we – how it used to be, that corporations felt they had a some sort of relationship with the employees, with the community, with where they – with the country and everything like that. So this is not – this is sort of going back to the future kind of thing. Well, during World War II, corporations – and workers and labor worked very, very closely together because we had a common enemy, the Nazis, the Axis powers. And you know, going to the 1950s and 1960s, unions were strong. And I think this partnership, this sense of cooperation really continued. Mm-hmm. And, and it was kind of an era of managerial capitalism where the manager ruled and you know, they worked in the same building or next to the factory and they're friendly with workers and want to treat, treat them well. The 1970s, we started having some serious economic problems with the 1973 and 1979 oil shocks. Come the 1980s, the horrendous recession in 80-81, the real beginning of flood of imports. And companies said, you know, we got to really get more serious on fighting unions and getting wages down and getting our profits up. And then that was the age of Milton Friedman mm-hmm. saying, you know, corporations, you have to focus on oh, profit right. maximization just on your shareholders. Screw the community. Screw the workers. You have one group you're supposed to serve shareholders. And that really prevailed during the 1980s in many ways. And then there was sort of a backlash again. And in 1990, the Business Roundtable issued a statement saying, you know, folks, maybe we've been too focused on profit oh, maximization and shareholders. We have to worry about I our stakeholders, workers, yeah. and, and the community, and the environment. Seven years later, they totally reversed themselves, and they said, no, no, we had it wrong. Mm-hmm. We have to focus on shareholders. You know, everyone else you know, is a derivative factor. The community and it will trickle down. And, will trickle. and that was, you know, from 1990 to 1997, why the big reversal, Milton Friedman's philosophy became all the more important, Michael Jensen, and also you know Ivan Bosky and and right. and, and the, the all the, the takeover raiders, they really intimidate a lot of companies. And and you know Bosky and Friedman were saying, you know you have one. You know, if you want to keep your job, you better one focus goal. on maximizing profits and shareholder value. Right. So one of the things, the reasons I asked that is because there's a lot of people feel like tech is the thing that got it, that got it. And 97 was when tech sort of started to really rise in importance in our society and in terms of these companies becoming, you know, right now I think the top companies are all tech companies or the top, the trillion dollar companies, Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, all others. I don't think Google's reached a trillion yet. But people tend to blame tech to it. I think it was an adjunct onto already existing problems. But, you know, I blame tech for a lot of things, as you know. But talk a little bit about that when that when that shift happened. So I think the shift from 1990 to 1997, I don't think tech was so prominent in the overall overarching intellectual discussion yet. It was starting to take off. Tech, you know, Silicon Valley, the, the entrepreneurs, the investors, you know, they focused a lot on uh, new technologies and, and, and maybe weren't so concerned about laying off workers. A lot of it was like minimizing headcount. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing with Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, you know, there are all these tensions that, you know, these huge tech companies, if we may call them tech companies, mm-hmm. you know, just don't treat their workers fairly enough. And we're seeing these huge fights between these tech companies and 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 the workers and raising public policy issues you know, our Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, employees. The gig who should, economy. Yeah, the gig economy. Should they receive benefits? You know, should Uber and Lyft help provide them with health insurance and social security? If they're employees, they can unionize. If they're defined as independent contractors, they can't. DoorDash is doing something truly outrageous, mm-hmm. uh, which I argue shows that, you know, the lack of 
respect that a lot of co- fundamental respect that a lot of corporations have for workers. DoorDash was basically stealing tips from workers who were making eight, ten dollars yeah. an hour, yeah. and it's like well, what's interesting in tech is they respect some workers and pay them in exorbitant amounts of money and bring them into the to the economic. As things go up, everybody benefits, and then others not so much. There was a really interesting thread on um, Twitter about an employee who was at WeWork in the early days who didn't get any shares. So the idea, what they were selling to people, was the idea that you're going to get shares, and therefore that's how you're going to benefit by you know the the sweat of your own brow, so to speak. No sweat is involved here whatsoever, right. but that's the idea. When we get back, we're talking with Stephen Greenhouse. We're going to talk about tech and where it is with workers right now, and where workers are going, because I think one of the things that's important is the tech economy has been changing things, and we'll move into talking about AI and job elimination and where we go from there. Stephen has a book. uh, He works for The New York Times. He has a book called Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're here with Stephen Greenhouse. Uh, he is a reporter for The New York Times. He's been covering labor for 30 years, which a lot has happened. His new book is called Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Stephen, let's talk a little bit more about how tech has shifted. And I want to get into AI because well, Let's talk about in the next time the future of where things are going. But there's no doubt tech has sort of inherited the idea where the workers are not the key part of the the innovation is more than anything. And at the same time, they have rewarded some of their workers exorbitantly. So, you know, tech is kind of a bifurcated thing. If you're a software engineer, you can get a very good job. You know, there are, you know, kids graduating with BAs and uh, masters in engineering and they're making $150,000, $200,000 a year. That's pretty damn good. So tech has been great for, you know, the, the folks who have the knowledge. And stock options. Yeah, and, and stock options. But then, you know, a lot of the workers, the grunt workers who maybe, you know, help fabricate chips or help you know, make this auto part of being replaced by by Or make their kombucha or do their massages. And and, and the whole service economy Mm -hmm. that's serving, you know, a lot of these wealthy Silicon Valley folks, you know, they're making $8, $9, $10, $12, and they're struggling to get by. 
And then, you know, we have all these concerns. You know, McKinsey says we're going to lose 20, 30, 40 million jobs to AI and robots. You know, some professors at Oxford say it's going to be basically we're going to lose one third of our jobs. Other folks say that's total BS. You know, there's been all this talk of robots and AI, but our unemployment rate now is 3.7%. Right. I mean, I'm concerned that, you know, there's this important discussion on the future of technology and robots and AI. And in, there are all these conferences about it, and like workers are hardly part of the discussion. There'll right. be two billionaires up there on the stage, and three millionaires, and and six, <laughs> you know, and and two, you know, uh, Silicon Valley angels, and mm-hmm. and you no know, worker representatives. And, and who's going to be hurt most by all this? Workers, right? So let's before we get into that. So we're right now the American worker. One, among the many issues is that things have become digitized. So people are just just the, before AI gets here, before automation gets here, before robotics gets here in heavy doses, for self-driving cars, which will have a big impact, all of these things. Right now, the state of miracle worker is this idea of a gig economy, which has sort of been pushed by technology because people can order anything. And again, just the way consumers like f- cheaper goods or cheaper whatever clothes or, you know, a $99 dress or a $9 dress versus how much it should really cost. They're not thinking of the implications every time they hit an app. What they're doing is what they're creating. What is the state right now, from your perspective, of the American workers? Sort of by far, talk about the sort of levels of American workers right now. So you know there are you know you know top ten percent generally do very well. You know they've been getting fairly steady wage increases. You know the bottom, the, the middle, and the bottom ten percent to fifty percent haven't been doing very well at all. The bottom 10% have done better than expected because of all these the fight for 15 and all mm-hmm. these uh, states of- This is a $15 of, yeah, minimum wage. $15 minimum wage and all these states are raising the minimum wage. But generally, you know, for the past 20, 30, 40 years, the folks in the bottom 50% haven't done well, haven't done well at all. The folks in the top 10% have, you know, if you're an engineer, you know, if you're a knowledge worker, you've generally done well, unless you're an adjunct professor. <laughs> and But if you're, you know, a service worker, you know, working in a nail salon or as a waiter, you know, you're often not, not doing very well. And, you know, I agree with you, Carrie. One of the big issues now is the rise of the gig economy. And mm-hmm. there are millions, tens of millions of workers who are freelancers, contract workers, independent contractors, temps. And, their lives have gotten very herky-jerky, unstable. Without benefits. Without, without, yeah, and, without, and, 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 you know, I think one of the biggest issues facing America today, and it's hardly discussed, is there's going to be gazillions of Americans retiring without enough money to live in retirement because mm-hmm. they have gig jobs and they're not going to get Social Security. They're not saving enough. And and as you say, there's a big you know health insurance problem. A lot of gig workers don't have health insurance with their job. And, and there's one party that's trying to create a safety net for them on health, and the whole other party is trying to take away the health safety net from them. And, you know, I was a reporter in France for five years. I covered all of Europe. And, you know, people there take universal health coverage for granted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's great. And here, you know, there are lots of people without health coverage. Lots of people go, you know, Elizabeth Warren originally made her name as a Harvard professor studying bankruptcy, saying that, you know, like one-fifth, one-third of people who file for bankruptcy do so because of, of some health, health crisis. So when you're talking about – right now, I was just struck by a number that I think I quoted last night. Google has 112,000 full-time employees but 120,000 contractors. This idea of contracting, even if at the high level, is a really – has really taken hold among tech companies, which use the – use it indiscriminately across all their different things from cooks to – and they, they're sort of a second-class citizen of, of these economies. I often think uh, as a student of corporate America that 
you know, CEOs, you know, are like lemmings. They follow fads. You know, for a while it was diversify, diversify, diversify. Then it was concentrate on your core business. Then it was, you know, yeah. shed this and shed that. And now it's like minimize headcount, minimize loyalty to your workers. You know, you don't want to feel bad if you have to lay them off. So there's this huge focus now on, you know, minimizing, you know, the size of the worker workforce, minimizing headcount. So we're seeing huge number of temps, you know, and contractors, even for some very important jobs. And again, I think this is having a profound effect on the workforce. It's created a lot more stress for a lot of workers. I was reported at the New York Times for 31 years. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of people who go from, you know, every three months, they're bouncing to a new job. And like, how do you raise a family like that? How do you buy a house like that? How do you save up for retirement on that? And, and you know, for me, these are some of the most profound issues facing America today, but instead we're beating up on immigrants rather than facing what I believe are, are the really big issues facing American workers and the American populace. What they tend to say in Silicon Valley and other places, and it's sort of infected, Silicon Valley infects these ideas, although I don't think they're new ideas, is that these people want this flexibility. You know, I have to sit through so many times when I'm sitting with Uber people or Lyft people or whoever. It's all of them. It's not just a few of them. It's all the DoorDash as the Postmates. The people like this flexibility. They like to be able to pick and choose what they want. They get the freedom of these jobs. You know, I hear Silicon Valley people saying that, but you look at, you know, polls by academics that show, you know, the workers in part-time jobs or in temp jobs, if they had their choice, would they want a full-time regular job or to have an insecure part-time or temp job? They want real jobs. People want security and stability. Yes, there are the writers and the artists and, and the musicians who are struggling to make a living, and yes, it's good for them to drive Uber for ten or fifteen hours. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know, a lot of Uber drivers I speak to, you know, they want, you know, they want to be considered real employees, and they want benefits. And you know, a lot of them say they want to unionize. Now, Uber says, well, if you're employees, then we're going to fix your schedule for you. You won't have flexibility. I think that's BS too, because yeah, too. the drivers want to drive when there's maximum business out there. And they'll do that. And, and you know, I, in my book, I quote an Uber driver in Seattle who said, you know, Uber's very much cut rates there. And he says he's working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. And, and this driver, Don Creary, said the flexibility they boast about evaporates as the pay goes down. There's not much flexibility if you have to drive 10 or 12 hours a day. So, you know, for the musicians mm-hmm. and, and the writers who need a little extra income, yes, there's flexibility for them. But, like, if you're doing it as a full-time job, right. you want to drive the two rush hours – and, you know, there isn't much flexibility. It's also a way, which I think really interesting, Casey Newton of The Verge, who is part of Vox Media, wrote these stories about the contractors that they're hiring to do things like uh, deal with hate speech and uh, ugly content and things like that. And what I found striking about that story, besides the appalling nature of these people's what they have to do, what they're, it's like to- cleaning up toxic waste, essentially, mental toxic waste, um, is that, one, they aren't paid very well. They're the, the, their working conditions are kind of shitty. Um, and then that they don't, work for these companies. One of the key parts of these companies are this, you know, a big chunk of their problem is hate speech, is is a toxicity, is conspiracy theories, is animal abuse, pedophile, things like everything that would just make anybody go crazy. And they put them somewhere else, like Tempe, Arizona, or they put them in Tampa. They're never sitting next to Mark Zuckerberg, and, you know, sitting next to him in the office. They don't belong to that company. And so to me, if they sat right next to them and they were paid a living wage, it would be a very different decision-making process around their algorithms and things like that. It seems to me it would be. 
they couldn't begin to afford the rent if they lived right. near if they lived in no, that's near true. That's Mark, Mark, so they probably have to pay them four times as much. Right. So these workers do very important work mm-hmm. and and it's no fun and we owe them a lot of respect for the, you know the the unpleasant mm-hmm. work they do and it's unfortunate that these companies that are worth a trillion dollars or close to a trillion dollars you know pay all these workers you know hardly enough to live on and 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 you know, I wrote this book saying you know, one of the big problems with America today is that there's been a serious decline in worker power. Mm-hmm. And I argue that you know, worker power has fallen in ways to its lowest level since World War II, even since the Great Depression. And corporate power really dominates the policy discussions, politics. You know, The minimum wage hasn't been raised in 10 years, the longest time ever. Yet Congress rushed out to give you know, $1.5 trillion in tax cuts to corporations and the rich when corporate profits were already at record levels, when Wall Street was already at record levels, and when the 1% already had the, you know, the highest amount of income since... Can, can you explain how that is when we have so such low employment that workers don't have power? So that's a good question. So statistics show that wages for the average worker have, have hardly gone up, you know, since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And now the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been since the 1960s, and that's great. So like this year and last year, finally, they have a little more bargaining power than they did five years ago and 10 years ago when the unemployment rate was higher. But like it's astonishing, and I think economists are, trying, are starting to see this, is that, yes, there's a little bump up in real after-inflation wages, but it's kind of minuscule compared to what it should be when unemployment is this low. Right. And, and you know, again, corporate profits are doing great. And instead of pumping their money into wage increases that they promised, they, pu- they pumped $800 billion last year into, into, stock, into right. stock buybacks. So why, what would it take to get workers to have more power now? They have ne- never more easy to organize, never more easy to communicate, never more easy to talk your, what your story is, your narrative, which is an important part of unionization is to talk about what you – just to get it out there to people. You know, obviously Donald Trump has been pushing the idea that he's a friend of the workers while rewarding very wealthy people. Um, how, do you, how do you do that then? What ha, what can happen? Is is it stacked against them no matter what in the in the new environment? So you know, I, I think a lot of tech workers, you know, are very well educated. Yes, they they're will do walkouts. Speaking out, they, they you know, and and you know, they're confident, mm-hmm. and they did that you know huge walkout at Google about sexual harassment, and like they really weren't worried about losing their jobs. And I think a lot of elite workers don't realize how cowed and intimidated and scared and humbled a lot of low-wage workers are, mm-hmm. you know, hotel housekeepers, nail salon workers. And, and so how do you help the workers on the bottom? Um, you know, I, I have arguments with people, you know, who say we should unionize the workers at Google and Facebook. And I say, mm-hmm. if they're making $175,000 a year. I'm not sure if they need a union. And we can mm-hmm. debate that. But if you're making, you know, that's a fair point. Yeah, $8 an hour as a hotel housekeeper right. in, in Cincinnati or, or Houston or New Orleans. Yeah, you, know, you, need, you need something to help lift yourself up. And yes, maybe you could talk to your manager and, and beg him and nudge him or her to give you a raise to $10. But a lot of times, you know, the, the, the squeaky wheel gets pushed out and, and people are really scared of losing their jobs. So, you know, I argue that, you know, one of the best vehicles to help low-wage workers is unionization, you know, raising the minimum wage too. And I argue that, uh, you know, the union overall unionization rate in the nation is down to basically one in 10 workers. Wow. And that's from... Where over, was it? It, it, it was 35 percent, you know, more than one in three in the 1950s. And so unions are, are very weak. And that's why, you know, I say that, you know, Congress 
hasn't really passed any true pro-worker, pro-union legislation in many years because, you know, corporate lobbyists and corporate donors call the shots. So, you know, I have the final chapter of my book really examines, you know, strategies, tactics to increase worker power. Name some of those. What so, are you- so one thing I think is very broken is the campaign finance system. And, you know, conservative editorial pages deride big labors as this horrible monster dominating the system. So in the 2015-2016 campaign cycle, corporate America spent $3.4 billion, you know, more than 16 times as much as all of organized labor, which spent $214 in lobbying in Washington. $240 million, yeah. Yeah. Corporations spend about $3 billion a year, while labor spends less than 1 60th as much. So... I think we really need to fix our campaign finance system in a big way to give average Americans, you know, to give school teachers and Walmart workers and steel workers more of a say. And we could discuss how to improve, how to do public financing. A second thing I say, you know, a lot of union leaders say, we got to make it easier to unionize. And, and that would help workers. But, you know, there are a lot of smaller things we could do, but it might be hard. Even if you pass all those things to make it easier to unionize, it might not be hard, easy to go from like, 10% to 12% or 13% right. of the workforce because corporations fight so hard against unionization. So I recommend, you know, again, I was a reporter in France. I spent a lot of time covering the German economy. And, and you know, it's funny, American companies say, if we unionize, we can't begin to be competitive. We're going to have to shut our yeah. factory. And, you know, I covered Daimler-Benz. I covered uh, uh, BMW. I covered Volkswagen. Those are very successful companies. Yes, VW screwed up very badly. Um, and they're heavily unionized. You know, Toyota, Honda, heavily unionized. They're very successful companies. And, and you know, I do think that, you know, the German model where, you know, workers elect nearly 50%, 50% of members on the supervisory boards, that has made German companies, I argue, much more attentive to the I concerns. They, they invest far, far more in workers, in training workers. They don't offshore nearly as much as American companies. So, I like, you know, so Tammy Baldwin, senator from Wisconsin, mm-hmm. proposed a bill that would let workers elect 33% of the board. Then someone named Elizabeth Warren raised her, saw her and I've raised her, her. and She's raised her. She's got some plans, yes, I understand. Yes, she has some ideas. Yeah. She says uh, workers should be able to elect 40% of the corporate board. I mm-hmm. think, and, and, and public opinion polls show that, you know, Americans support that by like a two to one ratio. So why doesn't that happen? It's an interesting, it was a discussion I recently had, I'm thinking writing about it actually, putting a, a worker on the boards of tech companies, for example, like why are they all stacked full of idiot VCs and financiers, like who don't, who literally drive, who have no value that I can discern in any way. Um, so I expect your, you to say the answer is Milton Friedman. But <laughs> Fuck Milton Friedman is what I say these days, but go ahead. So, you don't you have know, to. No, I think, you know, America has a tradition of not having workers on the boards. And if mm-hmm. you succumb to that, you're seen as weak and you right. want people who are there for profit maximization. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I think, you know, with, with, with what the Business Roundtable Jamie Dimon said this week, this, realizing that something is really out of whack. You know, corporate profits as a percentage of the GDP is at its highest level since World War II. You know, worker compensation is at its lowest level since World War II. Wage stagnation has really been stagnant except a little bump up in the, in yeah. the past few years. So things, you know, things are broken. And one way, I think the easiest way to change it in a substantial way would be to pass legislation that allowed workers to be on boards. To, to be on boards because that would, that would change the conversation. You know, workers would not have the majority, but I think it would pressure boards to be more 
attentive to worker concerns, and maybe they maybe corporations would stop fighting against unions so hard. You know, I I, I have this line in my book that's really been picked up, saying, mm-hmm. "Oh, in no other country do corporations fight as hard to you know to beat back to quash unions," and that's true. Again, I you know I. I've written story. I've covered the economy in Britain and France and Germany mm-hmm. and Italy and Luxembourg and Austria and Sweden, and you know the companies there work with unions. They're like right. maybe they don't love them, but they see them as legitimate partners. Right. In the United States, I think a lot of companies see unions as kind of the enemy, right. and like we can't work with them. We want to annihilate them. We want to eviscerate them. We want to gut them. Well, it's interesting in tech companies. You mentioned in a minute. I mentioned it. The room clears rather quickly. Like, whoa, you know, it's fascinating. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this with Stephen Greenhouse. He's the author of Beaten Down, Worked Up: The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. When we get back, we're going to talk about where labor is going, including impact of technologies like automation, uh, self-driving, uh, AI, and all the other things that are coming down the pike, which have problems for American workers and workers across the globe. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen. We're here with Steve Greenhouse. He's the author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future American Labor. He's also a reporter for The New York Times. He's been covering labor for decades. He's had a very steady job. Congratulations, Steve. So talk about what's coming because I, I always – whenever he gives me just I talk about like things that are coming and the shift is happening much faster than people realize. One is obviously automation. The other is robotics and automation together. The other is AI and, and the job replacement. There's a lot of scare stories out there, but at the same time, it's very clear that m- what I always say is everything that can be digitized will be digitized in, cl- in terms of jobs. And then there's lots of other things like self-driving along the edges, which are going to dramatically change our society in terms of – which are welcome in many ways. Talk about where you think the American labor force is headed and what, what do we need to do to change with that? Because it it's inevitable that this is happening, whether you like it or not. I mean, as you know, Kara, there's this huge debate among economists who are far smarter than me and maybe mm-hmm. even smarter than you. I don't know. You know, you know, who say, you know, will AI and robots wipe out 20, 30, 40 million jobs? Will there be 40 million Americans for whom there are no jobs anymore? Mm-hmm. And there are others who say... Or not those jobs. Or not those jobs. Well, they say there won't, they just won't be enough jobs. And others say... Well, automation technology is not going to wipe out that many jobs. And even if it wipes out a lot of jobs, there'll be other new jobs. Right. That's the you know, argument. As, as tutor, Without any yeah, specificity yeah, yeah. of what as those As little league coaches or tutors for needy kids in school or you know, mm-hmm. better home care. Te- who knows? And that is really being played out. Right. But what's clear is that – you're right – is that you know, technology, AI, robots are going to replace a lot of people. And the question is whether they fall out of the workforce without any jobs or whether there are new things for them. So one of the things that's interesting is they – some of the jobs should be replaced. We probably should have machines digging coal. 
people shouldn't be digging scrabbling coal and ripping it out of the ground. It just shouldn't. They shouldn't. And it's, people and people are going to say we shouldn't have anything removing coal because of right. yeah, that's another decreed. issue. Yeah. That's another. Yeah. But I'm just saying, yeah. any lots of jobs you could say, why do we have lawyers doing? pattern matching work when computers do it better? Why do we have radiologists? Like That's an example given all the time. Why do we have them looking at thousands of slides when AI can do it much better? And, they, and it can. Like it's, The fact of the matter is eventually a lot of these jobs that can be digitized and you can move, not just manufacturing jobs and low labor jobs, but like in San Francisco, we have burger flipping machines. We've got coffee machines. Even though they're sort of, sort of a weird little thing, I think they will be like that. Like it makes sense. Some of these jobs should be replaced. I I, I, totally, I totally agree, Kara. But so, what does what replaces it? So several answers. You know, so yeah. maybe we won't need we'll only we'll need three hundred thousand less burger flippers at mm-hmm. fast food restaurants. So what should those workers do? Should they become, you know, unemployed for years and rot, and maybe have you know universal basic income for them? Maybe they could become home care attendants because with you know the the, the huge rise in the elderly or you know with all these needy kids in school. Maybe they could become tutors or, or after-school coach. Or who knows? But it's unclear whether there will be jobs for them. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, I think workers aren't, an, aren't sufficiently part of this discussion. And you know, so the talk about universal basic income, I understand the idealistic sentiment behind it that if jobs for 30 million Americans disappear and there's nothing else for them to do because we become so automated... Are they just going to rot without yeah. any jobs? So let's give them universal basic income. Right, this is Andrew Yang. I just said Andrew great Yang. Interview. Yeah, which he talks about the idea is that it frees you up to be entrepreneurial, yes. to be creative. If you remove worry by giving health care and a certain small amount of money, you can actually create more jobs. That's the idea. So I th- probably have been in touch with more blue-collar workers yes. and, and workers with a high school education than Andrew. And a lot of them just aren't entrepreneurs. I mean, right. and, and yes, it's nice to a, think I that. Agree. And they need some income. So you generally hear universal basic income should be $1,000 a month, mm-hmm. $12,000 a right. year. You know, all I could say is good luck trying to live on $12,000 a year. And then some conservative supporters of UBI say, well, if we have universal basic income, then we don't need Medicaid anymore. We don't right. need Social Security anymore. We don't need food stamps anymore. So if you're making $12,000 a year on UBI without a safety net, you know, yeah. we need, I, I say we need workers to enter this discussion because that yes. would, because they're not going to support that. Yes, because they're so, not entrepreneur. Not everyone is. I mean, someone the other day in Silicon Valley told me, well, you know, people are just going to all have to be entrepreneurial. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, I'm pretty entrepreneurial as a reporter, but most reporters really aren't. Like, for example, I was just in my profession. Um, and it's really interesting. Like, I don't we don't teach people to be maybe they Americans are probably more entrepreneurial than other people or more scrabbly, I guess, I guess. But they're not. I guess when there's less of a social safety net, yes. yeah. and there's far less here than in Europe and Japan, mm-hmm. you know, that forces people to somewhat be more entrepreneurial. But let's be real. I think these people, you know, their heads are in the clouds or somewhere. You know, what percentage of business of small businesses fail every year? A ton, and a Most lot of, of a lot of these entrepreneurs are not going to be able to support themselves and their families. And you know, if we move towards a more entrepreneurial society or or less. You know, uh, less secure jobs, more volatile jobs. Um, we need a stronger social safety net. I, I argue, you know, on both health care and on retirement. And the people who say, "Oh, we'll all live happily ever, ever after by converting people into entrepreneurs," that's that's delusional. I submit. And you know, a point I I, I I've been making now. So we hear a lot about if UBI robots wipe out thirty million jobs, mm-hmm. we should have UBI. I say, well. 
there's something called work sharing that mm-hmm. should be in a very important part of this conversation and it's hardly discussed at all. I remember during the Great Recession, 2007, 2009, when unemployment rose to 10 percent, uh, many companies, many states have provisions that companies can go to a four-day or three-day right. work week and the workers are getting paid for three or four days and they're getting unemployment insurance on top of that. And I think a lot of workers who might someday lose their jobs to AI or robots, they don't want to totally lose their jobs and sit at home and live on $1,000 a month of UBI. They want to continue working. So I argue that you know all this talk about you know what we should do for the workforce if all these jobs get wiped up, it should focus much more on work sharing. So maybe companies, instead of laying off 20% of the workers, have people huh. work three days a week or four days a week. And that way people will still feel and be gainful members contributing to society. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. So what other ideas, where do you think things are going? If you had to be a predictor of, you know, these jobs will be gone, what are the jobs that will be created? Do you have any? Because when I ask that question of tech people that are, that are so cavalier about this, they're like, well, I don't know. It'll be something. And I'm like, okay. About about that's how the, they that's how they approach the Demo- the Russians attacking Facebook. So that's I'm a little bit worried about that. About the only jobs I'm sure will increase are jobs caring for the elderly, mm-hmm. because you know I have a 93 year old father in law, and and you know and you know the elderly population is going to increase. It's really you know are we going to need more fast food workers? You know we'll probably need more delivery people too because mm-hmm. we have more. But that means less and retail. And that means less retail, yes, yes. Right. And, Which has really and, gotten decimated. And, you know, I, and I do think ultimately we as a society maybe could go from a 40-hour work week, although a lot of people work 60, 70 hours a week, but really Hello, cut Stephen. back the amount of hours we work to like you know, a four-day week or three-day week. And if things were run in a more sensible way that really served – people rather than profit maximization. You know, we try, you know, people could have more time to relax, more time with their families, more time to go on vacation, more time to take care of their aging parents. But you know, I think companies will say it's much more efficient to have our workers working six and a half days, six days a week than having all these workers working three days a week. Is there any push to, to, to have that happen? I, I'm just amazed that in this discussion about the future of work, you know, with these new technologies, there's not more discussion of work sharing. Like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm the only one I hear saying that, and right. it just it's so obvious I, to the me. First time I've it's heard so it. obvious to me, right? And like, yeah, it might be uncomfortable for companies because if you have people working three days a week rather than five days a week, and you have to provide them with full benefits, that that costs. But in theory, the companies will be making a lot more money thanks to all these wonderful new technologies, so they could share the benefits of these new technologies with workers. You know, right. one of the startling statistics one sees is that you know when unions are stronger. Strong at their strongest in, in the decades after World War II, basically employee productivity per hour and employee compensation compensation per hour essentially doubled, rose hand in hand between 1946 and 1973. Since 1973, employee productivity has risen six times as fast as employee compensation. And you know, one could have a big debate about why that's happening, but it shows that there's this disconnect that as companies. Uh, had record profits, and Wall Street has kept climbing. Wages have really stagnated. And so, in that in that scenario, if that was what you're doing, work sharing, what else needs to be done? Education, obviously. In my book, I write about a fast food worker, a McDonald's worker in in Kansas City. He has he holds two full time jobs. He leaves his house at six in the morning before his three daughters wake up. He he works at one job, and he goes to his Pizza Hut job. He gets home at twelve or one a.m. 
you know, after his daughters go to sleep and he leaves again and, and he doesn't see them. And, you know, he, and this, this was a, a smart – Terrence Wise is a very smart guy. And he says people tell him, you should go to college. You should go to college. And, and he says, I'd love to go to college. I can't begin to afford to go to college. I have three daughters to raise. And thanks – and, and I often tell people, yes, it would be great if everyone could go to college, but we're still going to need ben pe- bedpan emptiers. We're still going to need, you know, right. hamburger flippers. Maybe that would be robotized or someone at the McDonald's counter. And, you know, they, they shouldn't starve because they haven't gone to college. I think we need a good, strong floor so that workers in the bottom jobs make a decent living. And, these, and I, I argue with all these people who say they should all get college degrees and then you know, they'll do fine. But a lot of people won't get college degrees. A lot of people just, you know, aren't equipped to get college degrees. Well, there's a there's a great Martin Luther King quote, you know, people say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, forgetting that a lot of people don't have shoes. Right. Right. To start with. So what what would be the answer? I mean, a lot of people are always pushing the idea of, you know, digital education and at home. And I'm like, do you know how tired they are? Like, can they do that? And then, of course, you know, pummeled by so many other other responsibilities and opiates play a factor, all kinds of things, bad nutrition. It doesn't even occur to them, the, the difficulties that these workers face. So, so, you know, the fight for $15, it really got off the ground in 2011, 2012. It was really pushed by the union, the, the service course, employees yeah. union, you know, it, you know, which helped elect Obama. And here we are in late 2011, and all the talk is that you know, it's about austerity. You know, Pete Peterson, the billionaire, put this whole – by himself put this whole issue on the map. And so we have uh, you know, talk about cutting Medicare, cutting Social Security. And this union says, you know, what the F? You know, mm-hmm. you know, we elected Obama to do progressive things. We haven't covered from the recession. Wages are going nowhere. We have to change the conversation. We have to lift wages for those at the bottom because so many – are struggling, so it created you know this fight for fifteen. It mobilized you know thousands, tens of thousands of fast food workers in hundreds of cities, and you know its philosophy was that you know people who work hard should be able to support their families, and you know not everyone can, is going to go to college, not everyone can go to college. So it said, let's raise the floor from seven twenty-five an hour, the current federal minimum wage, which has been the minimum wage for past 10 years and is worth you know, almost 30% less than the minimum wage mm-hmm. had been. And, and they said, let's create a $15 floor because then people can begin to make a decent living. And, and I think you know, we, you know, we're a very Milton Friedman, libertarian, mm-hmm. free market nation, and just you know, let things go wherever they go. And, and you know, I argue that the floor for many workers is far too low. You know, all these, you know, I argue with these think tank people making two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars a year, saying, you know, we can't raise the minimum wage; it's bad for workers. Like, I want to tell them, you try to live on seven twenty-five an hour. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I mean, just the lack of the worker sympathy and oh, concern totally. just really gets me. So, I'm going to finish up. What could tech do to help, and what are the things they've got to stop doing that's hurting? So, you can start with either. Sure. One. I mean, you know, tech can be a wonderful thing. It's great for connecting people. It's, you know, great for, you know, talking to your second cousin in, in, in Germany mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and if your workers want to mobilize, you know, you could get in touch that way. But, you know, I certainly agree with the concerns that there's too much invasion of privacy. There's too much, you know, the, the tech companies don't do enough to stop the spread of hate. And, and for workers, I, and, especially in this immigrant. Yeah. And for, I mean, you know, so, 
you know, tech could be used as a good tool for education. You know, I generally believe that in-class education is better than online yes. education, but in-class education is often expensive, and it's you know you have to go when the class is held, whereas online education you could do it on your time very often. So I think that's an important tool that can be used to help lift many people. You know, one of my big concerns about tech, and I think no one foresaw maybe you know no one foresaw this 10, 15 years ago, is it really has polarized our nation and the world in very disturbing ways. And there used to be the fairness doctrine in, in, in mm-hmm. television that required you know the evening news to be, present a balanced approach, and that kind of helped build a consensus in the nation on many issues. And now you know we seem to be you know pulled apart by centrifugal forces and. And it's hard to know what the truth is. And I can't stand it when people say, you know, news media and and great, honest journalists with huge integrity at the New York Times and Washington Post are enemies of the people. So the Internet, you know, is too often used for hate and division. And and I think we have to figure out a way to use it more to unify and create progress for everybody. Commonality between workers. And the last question, one of the things that I've been on the tech people for is this immigration issue from the beginning. When they didn't bring it up in their first meeting with Trump, I was sort of appalled. That was the one thing I thought. These people, half of them in the room were immigrants themselves. Um, That's the big story of Silicon Valley, founded by immigrants. You know, you could name 10 CEOs. They're all from another country. Should they be more attuned to this issue, even if it's not workers that help them, you know, these these high, highly skilled workers. To me, they should be defending all immigrants, no matter what. I agree, comma, but. So last week, uh, Trump spoke at a new World Dutch Shell plastics plant in, in right outside Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the company... Kind Pay of them. told Pay us to told be. its workers, you know, you know, five thousand workers. You know, if you want to be paid for today, you better show up. So I think the corporation and the workers and the union, which agreed to this, they're scared of Donald Trump mm-hmm. because he's a very vindictive guy, and people worry, and Silicon Valley execs worry. If you get on this guy's bad side, bad things are going to happen to you. We could see that happening with Jeff Bezos and Amazon. He's really vindictive. So I think the Silicon Valley executives, in the heart of hearts, they believe in the importance of immigration. They know that immigrants are, you know, do have one, done wonderful things for American society. But I think in their concerns about profit maximization and shareholder value, they don't want to get on Donald Trump's bad side by saying, you know, Mr. Trump, you're really being too harsh on immigrants. It's outrageous that you're separating children from their families. That's not the American way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the richest people in the world, they're victims, in case you're interested. Whenever I talk to them, they're like, well, I'm like, you're the richest people in the world. You literally, like, Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world by a factor of insanity. And to me, for them to troop up there and put their heads down, they're not at risk. I mean, they're not at risk. You know, we crit- you know there's, lots of reason- there's lots of reason to criticize Bezos right. for how not he good. handles Amazon. Yeah. But, you know, I give him lots of credit for doing a wonderful job at The Washington Post yes. and being willing Agreed. Agreed. to stand up That's to Donald Trump. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. They can do it. I'm not Jeff, of course, is doing that, I yeah, think, in yeah. a lot of ways. And he did do the $15 minimum wage. I think it was to stave off a lot of things. But I don't care. He did yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but I do think a lot of them could, to me, the most powerful people in the world acting like they're not is just exhausting on so many levels. And anyway, Steve, this is a really important book. It's very important to think about these issues because I think American labor, uh, the way we're going to work is going to be the most, I think, the most important issue going forward. This is Stephen Greenhouse. He's with The New York Times. His new book is called Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. 
Thank you, Steve, for coming on the show. Great to be here. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Steve, where can people find you and your book online? Uh, my Twitter is GreenhouseNYT. And You're my... being careful with your tweets, apparently, at the New York Times. That's an issue. Uh, <laughs> I do occasionally criticize the president. I'm no, <laughs> longer, at it, New... I'm no longer at the New York okay. Times. I'm retired, so I have a little more freedom. Okay, go for it. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Brandon McFarland. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.